Welcome to Legend Lore with Luis and Lauren, where we talk about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. I'm Luis, and I'm a senior developer at Paizo working on the Pathfinder Lost Omens line. I've been playing tabletop RPGs for over 15 years, and I've written for dozens of Pathfinder products. I'm also the co-host of No Direction, the GM for Valiant, and I write the Monstrous Physique blog here on the No Direction Network. And I'm Lauren. I've been playing RPGs for 20 years. I've contributed to multiple Pathfinder blogs and podcasts, and I'm currently a grad student in the field of animal intelligence. And this week, we're talking about humans in fantasy. Now, before we get started, we want to say that although we know a lot about what we're talking about when it comes to Pathfinder, we're not providing any kind of official answers. We're here to offer advice, and you can use that however you like. Remember that the official word from Paizo is the only official ruling out there. But don't forget, it's your game. Do what works best for your table. All right, so this episode concludes our series on the ancestries of the core rule book. Mm-hmm. After this, we can go into talking about other ancestors, but this is the last one for the core rule book. Well, and we s- well, we have one more episode for the core rule book, but it's not an ancestry. It's versatile heritages that we're going to be talking about, right? That's right. Yes. And we, and we saved this one. We saved humans for last from the core rule book because this honestly might be the hardest ancestry to talk about since it's so close to home. Yeah, very close to home. Yeah. Uh, I've known a number of humans uh, growing up in my life. so My I, best I, friend is a human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we're going to do for this, uh, in order to talk about humans in fantasy, is we're going to try to distinguish between the way that humans are represented in fiction and between the way people are in real life. So this is this is why I keep saying fantasy humans or humans in fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I think humans in fantasy kind of exemplify like a lot of those silly mottos that don't mean anything. A lot of those carpe diem mottos, you know, like adapt, improvise, and overcome. Fortune favors the bold. Who dares wins. Like humans, like they don't give up. No. In these stories, you know, uh, a lot of the time they are the living embodiment of what we always refer to as the human spirit, right? The unrelenting, uh, the, the yeah, they don't give up. They <laughs> they're de- determined, uh, endlessly uh, capable people. Yeah, you know, if they get knocked down, they always get back up again. You know, they're ambitious. They're they're plucky. They're tenacious. They're. Uh, I think sometimes that also gets embodied as almost foolish. Like you know, oh yeah. they they, oh, yeah. they they don't know when to stop, even when it would be to their detriment. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times that's one of the things that we love in our in our characters. You know, mm-hmm. one thing that I do want to mention is that I get the feeling that a lot of players look at human in the fantasy world or as a, as a character choice. And I think they get dismissed because since we are humans, I think a fantasy human gets looked at as vanilla or boring or, yeah. or like just a, or just a blank canvas, you know? Mm-hmm. But I don't, think, I don't think that is doing humans justice. You mm-hmm. know, I think it's important to look at what makes our species special and kind of enjoy that, bring all of that to the table in the fantasy game. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times when we do these episodes, I like to, I like to bring examples from pop culture. But since like ninety nine point nine percent of pop culture is fictional humans, yeah, it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to just name off, you know, any human that we can think of. So what I've done, and I've asked Luis to do this too, is I've picked a few human characters from fiction that I think embody the human spirit the best for different reasons. <laughs> and I'd kind of like to talk about those just a little bit. And my first one is Captain Jean-Luc Picard, you know, from Next Generation. I picked him because he, I don't know, you know, how do you describe Picard? As a, you know, the more I think about it, he's just such a dynamic character, right? I mean, I think ultimately what 
most people gravitate towards is his leadership, right? He always is ready to step up to whatever challenge happens and and guide his crew uh, through it. Uh, yeah, I think people really admire him kind of having that wisdom of like, I always happen to know the right thing to say in a situation and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you know, in particularly hard situations, he'll improvise and figure out how to get as many people back home as possible. You know? Yeah, he is kind of a an exemplar uh, of morality as well, right? Uh, the other the other uh, fictional character I picked is Frank Castle, one of my personal favorites, also known as the Punisher. And the main reason I like this character, and the main reason I think he exemplifies the human spirit, is because he is a normal guy who is using his skills, his adaptability, his ability to improvise. He's using these uniquely human characteristics to fight these superhumans and, and like just these things that are far above his weight class, you mm-hmm. know? And he, does, and he doesn't give up. He, he holds on to his morals. No matter how many times you beat him up, he, he comes back stronger than before. So yeah, I think Frank Castle is like a, a true, a human's human. <laughs> I think I have um, a lot of stuff that's on a similar side of a coin or maybe the flip side of the coin, I don't know. Uh, so the first one that comes to mind for me is the m- protagonist of the Mass Effect series, Commander Shepard, who is technically a blanker slate of a human than than most of these other characters. <laughs> I guess so, huh? Because, uh, yeah, you can map Commander Shepard to be whatever you want. You can have Commander Shepard be uh, whatever gender you want, or um, there's also in the game you have different options that lead you more towards the Paragon, the more virtuous route, or the Renegade route, which isn't necessarily evil, but you're willing to uh, do whatever it takes to get things done and are not worried about who it offends or anything like that. So you can punch out reporters or, or destroy entire uh, uh, space stations or whatever for the sake of the greater good or, or your mission at hand. Um, so it, it's um, an interesting representation of humanity in both that like oh yeah look the best of out of all of us is commander shepherd but also like if you're a renegade shepherd you might be the biggest jerk in all of space but you know you can't deny the results that shepherd gets um so you know just both sides of, of, of how humanity can be uh in a similar vein to the punisher i have uh, batman uh, who we've never mentioned on this show before, but I figured, I figured this would be a good time to bring him up. Batman, like like the Punisher, is also just a human among gods, uh, having to deal with the ultimate uh, challenge of being a you know, someone with an unbreakable spirit, uh, unbreakable will, uh, and using just his his body and his 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 wits to to outclass so many of his foes and and others uh of his peers as well and then this last one i have which is kind of a stretch i think but i think it's very important to include is uh contemporary to batman a little guy known as superman superman i think is kind of uh the idealized reflection of humanity uh superman wants the world to be the best it can be the people it can be uh the, the, the wants people to be the best they can be uh he, he embodies like the ultimate good that people can be uh and and tries to live his life in a way that hopefully inspires others to do the same and i think that is he's not human technically he's technically an alien from from beyond earth but like he he's trying to be the best human he can ever be and i think there's there's something in there that makes superman uh in a way, a, you know, a, a great human. And if we don't want to count him as uh, a human, we can always go back to his parents, Ma and Pa Kent, uh, who were humans. And the only reason he knows how to be this good of a human is because he was raised by two fantastic humans himself. I do dissent a little bit with Superman since he's a Kryptonian. Mm. Yeah. But like, what, what, okay, so, but that gave me an idea. Like, what mm-hmm. about Captain America? Like, mm-hmm. he, he equally has been given superhuman powers. Sure. But I, yeah, but I think he, he kind of fits the human idea pretty well. Yeah, definitely. He is 
peak humanity, at least physically, right? And then uh, also trying to do the best by everyone in the world. Now, while we were talking about this, we did notice a few different trends, which I think are really interesting to bring up. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them that I thought of, I don't know if we talked about this yet, is that a lot of, well, one of my characters and one of yours both came from sci-fi series. And yeah. I was also wondering if I should have included a Star Wars character like Han Solo or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he would have been a good fit as well. Is there something about, you know, science fiction? Is there something about like a space opera that really allows a human to, to shine, to, to be their, the paragon of humanity? I don't think it's just limited to sci-fi. I think any setting, any story where humans aren't the only people around, right? If it's fantasy and other dwarves and elves or whatever, if it's sci-fi, there's other aliens and stuff. As long as humans aren't the only people around, it becomes easier, I think, to see those like idealized aspects of humanity compared to you know everything it's much easier to tell what is human and what isn't human when you can have a human right next to a dwarf or right next to uh klingon or whatever uh compared to i don't know some modern day story where it's just everyday people right you don't start seeing humans you just see people but when they are next to other species other groups of people like that you can still you can tell like oh yeah this is clearly a human thing compared to this is an elf thing this is a uh, whatever thing. Well, you know you you make me think of another good point mm -hmm. because all of the characters that we've picked are are fit just that archetype. They all come from settings where humans aren't the only game in town. You know. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if we can think of some from human only worlds like. When I was coming up with my characters, I was wondering, is there someone I would pick from Game of Thrones? And nobody, like, really stuck out for me, but maybe Tyrion? Uh, I think you can look at characters like King Arthur, right? Like, they are the heroes that everyone rallies behind and stuff, and they represent a lot of that human spirit, but also, like, the, the kindness and gen generosity of humans he could have had his long table where he was the head, but you know, he decided the round table because everyone is equal to, at his table and stuff like that. And that's, I think, another one of those idealized human things that, that we like to see in our stories. Hmm. I was wondering about like the Belmont family mm -hmm. from Castlevania. Yeah, but, but then again, they're in a, a situation exactly. where they're, they're not just humans. Yeah, you've got, you got vampires, you got ghouls and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about Let's talk a little bit more about the human species. Obviously, they come in all different shapes and sizes, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you have all different shades of melanin <laughs> yep. in the human species. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> they have two eyes and they <laughs> normally have hair. <laughs> bipedal. Yeah. In, uh, in Pathfinder, humans are... Hum mechanically, humans are very versatile. This mm -hmm. is what Paizo has done to the human ancestry, is they've kind of codified the versatility and the dynamicism of humans. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The every... So I think when you design mechanics for humans, you run into an interesting thing that is something that doesn't crop up so much with the other ancestries. Um, in that you can point this back to real-world people, right? There are ethnicities in the Pathfinder setting that aren't ethnicities that map exactly to what we have in the real world, but, you know, there are some that you can like, oh, this is like this group of people, or that's kind of like that. You can see the like inspiration. That. You can see the inspiration. You can see, you know, based on where they live geographically, like, oh, yeah, there's a chance that it's grabbing maybe from these several groups of people from this region in the real world and stuff like that. But that also means the moment you apply a mechanic to an ethnicity, to a human, to, you know, something like that, um, there's a chance that people can read that as any number of things, right? If you decide that um, a particular human ethnicity is good at 
um, I don't know, good at throwing rocks, right? Whatever. Um, you suddenly make this broad blanket statement about this group of people that can come back to the real world in a way that uh, could be negative, right? Even if it's just like, oh, these people are really good at balancing on one foot, right? That's not necessarily something that you would see as negative, but like it, it then becomes negative by saying everyone else is bad <laughs> at, at, at balancing on one foot if you take that as an extreme. Uh, and, you know, because of that, you have to be very careful about what you apply mechanics to. And as a result, we end up with humans that don't do things like, ah, we are smarter than everyone else or faster than everyone else or anything like that. It's just we are varied. That's what humanity is. Humanity is varied. There's so many groups of people in the real world. Why not use that as your mechanical influence and inspiration for, for the world? And, and the game, and that's exactly what the designers did, which I think is uh, a great way to handle it. Um, but and that's uh, that and that 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 dynamicism, that range <laughs> of of humans, that versatility. That's the core point of humans in this. That's their <laughs> main strength. You know, yeah. this is what sets them apart. Exactly. Now, I, I just came up with my version of the the fantasy human from an all-human setting that exemplifies the human spirit. Mm -hmm. Ragnar Lothbrook. <laughs> of course. The famous Viking. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I think it's perfect. What an adventurer. What an explorer. What a leader. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and actually, when you think about it, we can like look to real-world people, right? We can have, like... Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. We can have Albert Einstein. We can have... Florence, Night Florence Nightingale, <laughs> you know, we can have even not necessarily like someone who helped change the world in, in big ways, but like he's, he's a notable person, has that human spirit, the adventure spirit, right? Like Amelia Earhart is a notable figure as well. Oh, um, I love her. Stuff like that, right? Like you don't have to be someone that changes the world to exemplify that, that human spirit and boldness and... and 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 everything so yeah look there are probably people that you can turn to in your real life right now you can you know maybe look at a parent or, or a sibling or someone else that's a close friend or something and be like you know what actually i i i'm amazed by the things that you do you're an amazing human well this just turned wholesome thank you for that, <laughs> i like hearing that uh, anyway, getting back to these mechanics. Hey, did you know that humans have eight hit points to start off with? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so in the real world, you know, we have a lot of different heritages. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, my family's pretty strongly German. We also have some French in there. Uh, I think in Galarian, instead of mapping the human heritages to all the different regions and cultures that Galarian has, Instead, they've kind of been convinced into, like you were saying, this versatility yeah. or, or, or this ability to adapt. And so that's why in the core rule book, we have the versatile heritage, which gives humans an extra general feat so they can maybe be more tough. They can maybe move a little bit faster, maybe recover from disease faster, whatever, you know, kind of makes sense for that character. Or you have the skilled heritage where you can you can take some type of skill in the game like nature or whatever you crafting. can and you can crafting you can be trained in it and additionally at fifth level it turns into an expert skill so it kind of levels up a little bit with you without you needing to do anything more than just you know kind of have a heritage and mm -hmm. i think that i think that the skilled in particular really does a good job of kind of representing all of those unspoken regions and cultures yeah. Because a lot of cultures, you know, might have a particular skill in something. And I think I think the skilled heritage would represent that pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also some... Uh, there are also two what ended up being called versatile heritages, but didn't exist as versatile heritages until later in the, the game's life. But um, we have uh, the half-elf and half-work, which is a common fantasy trope. Uh, humans having kids with elves and orcs and as a result you're both an elf and a, 
a human and can take different feats and stuff and you can get low light vision as a result. Those are both pretty interesting and so interesting in fact that I think we're going to spin them out into their own episode uh, for, for next time. So we'll talk about half-elves and half-orcs and their feats and their cultural impact and all that stuff at a later time. Uh, but the other human heritage that exists at this point is one that showed up in the character guide. This one is actually tied to the setting a lot more than what's in the core rulebook is the winter touched heritage which says that you're kind of in the lineage uh, of Yadwiga and witches and stuff from Erison and as a result you have kind of a wintry magic or or something in your bloodline that gives you a resistance to cold you get you know uh, resistance to cold equal to half your level so that's fun that's pretty unique humans aren't doing that in the real world some of the other things that all Pathfinder humans share, regardless of their heritage, is they all start out with eight hit points. They're all medium size. I think as a GM, uh, I think as a player, you could probably argue to your GM if you wanted to be small size, and sure. you might be able to get away with it. Uh, you have a 25-foot move speed, which is, you know, the default. <laughs> but I think, I think one of the main things to point out here, though, is that your two free boosts, again, emphasizes that human dynamicism, that human ability to adapt or excel at whatever it is that, you know, floats your boat. Finally, there is one last thing to get common as a language and additional languages equal to their intelligence modifier like most everyone else, but there was a, uh, an errata later that said, hey, you also gain a language from your ethnicity. So if you're playing in Galarian and you pick Varisian as your ethnicity, you also gain Varisian as a language. Uh, as that if you're playing in a home game, I recommend, you know, give give your humans an extra language because they, they don't got much else going on stat-wise. So it, it can't hurt to give them an extra language for a regional language or maybe they, they grew up in a place that was cosmopolitan and they happen to meet halflings and now they also know halflings or something. Um, yeah, whatever. But there you go. That's humans. Very, very simple to, to stat out, but also it, there's so much potential in there. I know that we normally pick like one or two of the notable ancestry feats to kind of talk about, uh, but I I thought it was important with this episode, with the human episode, especially mm-hmm. since humans are kind of seen as, you know, kind of vanilla sometimes. I thought it was important to pick out, you know, a few more notable feats and kind of describe what they embody, you know, for a fictional human. And the first one I've picked out Probably no surprise to anyone, natural ambition, because it's one of the main reasons people pick human yeah. is because it gives you that extra class feed at first level. And this kind of embodies the human sense of focus <laughs> um, and... What are you laughing hu- at? The human sense of min-maxing. The human sense of min-maxing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I'm going with focus and dedication, you know? <laughs> like, you know, like... Like in Japanese culture, I know that there's like this idea that you kind of do your job for so long, you become such just an incredible expert at your job that, you know, that like you're recognized as this just figure of impeccability. Mm-hmm. And I think that natural ambition is like a good way that a character starts down that road. Like you have your class, but you kind of know just a little bit more about it or you pull just a little bit more from your class just representing a little bit more study so another one that i think is both a min maxer's dream but also like uh, an embodiment of that versatility is is the ninth level feat multi-talented which uh, you gain a multi-class dedication so it has to be specifically a multi-class dedication you have to take you know sorcerer dedication fighter dedication whatever you can't take archer or bastion or medic um, but you get it for free even if you wouldn't normally qualify for it because you are currently taking another archetype. So you still have to meet the prerequisites. Uh, but that's pretty interesting, right? Being able to just halfway through your life, if you will, halfway through your, your career decide, oh, I'm going to change my direction and maybe try out a couple of new things. I was a fighter, but I'm kind of interested in this druid life. Let's figure that out a little bit. And it gets you uh, a foot in that door. Next one I want to talk about is the clever improviser feat. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what this does is that if you are not trained in a skill, 
it still gives you a proficiency bonus based on your level. And I think that this represents <laughs> this represents Dunning Kruger, <laughs> where the, where the less you know about something, the more confidence you have in it, you know, and then the more you know about it, your kind of confidence kind of weans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what this recommends. Because <laughs> if you don't know anything about crafting, Clever Improvisers like, yeah, but I can figure it out and give mm-hmm. you a good bonus for it. But- yeah, and I I really like it because uh, at higher levels you can take. Is that right? No, okay, no. Um, it 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 gives you untrained improvisation, which is just a general feat that lets you kind of try stuff out normally, but uh, or gives you a bonus normally to skills that you're untrained in. But in addition, it, it gets a little more than than what that general feat would be. You can try trained actions even if you're untrained, so you can do more than anyone else can normally. Uh, you know, let's say you could try to treat wounds in an emergency even though you're not trained in it. Just like whatever, I I I think I know enough to stop this bleeding, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and it's it's pretty great uh, from a gameplay standpoint, right? You you can always try something out, you know, and you might get lucky, you know, if everyone needs to roll a crafting check, and you happen to be the one that rolls well enough to to succeed at something just because you gave it a try. Yeah, I kind of think that this represents how how the fearlessness. The fearlessness. Well, how the yeah. human spirit is never out of options. Yeah. You know, like you've always got something you can try. The bold attempts that humanity takes. Yeah. Speaking of bold humans, there's also the haughty obstinacy feat. <laughs> I love this so much. I wish uh, I wish it saw more use in game. Mm-hmm. Uh, mechanically, it's if you succeed at someone trying to control you with a mental effect you get a crit success instead and if someone tries to coerce you with intimidation and it fails they get a critical failure instead you you can't be told what to do right humans are very stubborn and this is it this is the feat that tells you exactly (laughs) uh what that means mechanically and i think it's pretty funny ultimately that like you know not all the things that humans do are seen in like the most positive light, great, but it's actually still useful. Uh, and I think there's also um, a feat in the character guide that's tied to humans from... If you're from Taldor, you can take that pretty easily. And it's all about maintaining your composure and, and pushing on. Uh, and it's the stiff upper lip feat, which I think if you fail a, a, a mental effect or something, if you fail a will save, you can like pretend that it didn't affect you (laughs) which is more that stubbornness of like no of course everything is fine what are you talking about it's very british Mm -hmm. now normally when we do the ancestry episodes we'd like to talk about some of the culture of that ancestry which is a little bit tougher in galarian because almost every nation or region or culture is different than the ones next to it there's yeah. so much human culture in Galarian that I think what we have to do is we kind of have to look at some things that maybe like all human culture has in common. You know? Hmm. I'm trying to think what they would share. I mean, I think ultimately what humans share is what all the ancestries we've talked about end up sharing. Like it's just the the, the human nature stuff, you know, wanting to help others, be part of community, um, stuff like that. But there's also, you can be selfish. <laughs> that's, that's sometimes humans end up being selfish just that like anyone else. Yeah. Uh, but I think humans end up being selfish a lot more. Um, and just, I don't know, there's there's a whole section in the core rule book that features cultures. Uh, and it breaks down the, the various cultures of just the inner sea alone. There, there's so many more cultures that exist in the whole world of Galarian, we would not have time to talk about all these today. I think we'd have to do like three or four episodes just to talk about all the cultures in the core rulebook, let alone the entirety of Galarian. Uh, but yeah, there, there's uh, a lot of friendliness among humans. I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, I, I think you have some more ideas than I do. Yeah, because I do think it's important to try to highlight 
<laughs> some of the things that humans from all eras of humanity sure. have done and shared and put forward. Yeah. So and now like, we're talking real humans, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Talking yeah. real humans. But I think that this translates, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and one of those is humans have always been about sharing stories and, and music and you know talking about fables of the gods and like this was this was early human entertainment and we have always loved it and now we have like marvel movies and stuff like yeah this is just but this has always been like a uniquely human thing every culture on the planet has like all these incredible stories that they like to share another one is like almost every culture that i can think of has some kind of sport you know like like some kind of friendly competition thing and I think this is biologically driven when you think about it. Yeah. Like when, when two kittens or like when two puppies or like two other animals, like baby animals play with each other, they're learning from it, you know? Yeah. They're, they're learning how to excel at like predation or, or like escaping predators mm-hmm. or, or like something like that. And I think that sports kind of evolved out of that more animalistic side of us and, and the competition did to where we're kind of like honing our skills or getting better at something or being more athletic. Yeah, and then I think that evolves into games, right, as well. Like, you, you go from sports into competition to games, and then games become things that aren't necessarily sports. And soon enough, you combine that with stories, and we end up with role-playing games. We end up with role-playing games, the ultimate expression of humanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another one that I think is important uh, is our love of, f- of food and community. Like, mm-hmm. I get that a lot of non-human cultures in Galarian probably have that too. Like, you know, they, they love whatever their dwarven food and, you know, the gnome communities are real strong and tight-knit. But I think that humans uniquely establish this huge part of their identity around the communities that they make. Even if it's, like, hobby communities, like like the Warhammer 40k scene. Like, mm-hmm. that's a huge part of my life. And, you know, Warhammer's kind of like a part of my identity at this point. And I think that humans really kind of do that more than the other race, the other ancestries do. Yeah, and there's also going back to you know ancient humanity. You can't survive as a human on your own. You need your group, your village, your whatever, right? You you need other people's help to do things. And I think it's just kind of baked into our DNA at this point. And then again, you think about an adventuring party. Uh, and gathering for a game of Pathfinder or D&D or whatever, and maybe sharing snacks. All of this is, again, pointing to <laughs> role-playing games being the ultimate expression of our humanity. <laughs> if you Buy pizza for your GM. If you haven't bought pizza for your GM in a while, do it next game session. Mm-hmm. Or chip in, right? You don't have to each buy a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, listeners, if there's anything else you can think of that, like, all human culture that we know of like shares please share it with us on the uh, on the discord i really want to hear about it i think there's one other thing that comes to mind for me is just physical affection right like we like to touch we like to hug hold each other comfort each other and you know we're just uh having someone's arm around your shoulder even if nothing bad is going on but just that is always a thing that feels nice right there, there's something about that physical connection that people share that I think is also one of those baked into our DNA things. And again, uh, a thing you can do at the role-playing table. You can you know, <laughs> hug and get excited about things. I, I know people who a great role happens, you know, it's like the critical role that is important to the situation and then someone rolls a natural 20 everyone gets excited and there are high fives and hugs and cheering and stuff that's that's the physical connection again well and you remind me of the fact that that isn't ubiquitous in wildlife you know Mm -hmm. like some animals have you know this kind of somatic social interaction but like not all of them and especially not to the extent that humans do like most animals don't hug in fact when, when we see an animal that is cute, or, or like our dog or our cat, we have this unique reaction in the animal kingdom where we want to go up to it. We want to touch it. We want to pet it. We and want we to protect want to, it. We want to hug it. Uh, smother. Uh, we want to hug it, which mm-hmm. 
I think some researchers have suggested maybe our hugging of cute animals comes from some instinct in our head to smother it because we don't know what else to do with all of our love for it. <laughs> yeah. I always heard it was just our innate, like, desire to protect, you know, infants and cute things and stuff. Yeah, that's so. interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, humans are pretty cool. Now, Luis, what about the lore specifically human-related in Galarian? Oh, I know boy. that there's something about an Aslant empire, something about <laughs> Abolus and Aridin, maybe? So, humanity on Galarian is kind of had a mysterious origin, right? We can't point to one spot in the world where it's like, ah, this is where humans kind of arrived and, and kind of expanded out from. There's no obvious, like, here was the cradle of civilization back in, you know, 10, 20,000 years ago or whatever. Um, it What's interesting is uh, Galarian has had different ages. You know, there's the age of creation where the gods just created everything and age of serpents where Galarian was ruled by serpent folk and stuff like that. But there was just a point where, like, humans just kind of showed up don't know from where or how they just were suddenly they were there and you know if you could take a time machine back and look you probably could figure that out but we don't have as much evidence in the setting to be like ah yes humans originated from here which is pretty great you know that that means that there's no one group that can officially came like ah we are we're the best humans we were the first uh, and it leaves the door open for a lot of interesting stories. But there was one notable empire, as you mentioned, 10,000 years ago, the human empire of Aslant, which took up an entire continent all on its own and was pretty cool. It expanded out uh, some of its uh, spin-offs, if you will, became ancient Thassalon and their they interacted with a lot of other people. Aslant weren't the only humans that existed at, at their time. Uh, you know, there were people in the Mongi Expanse, there were people uh, elsewhere in Garoon and, and Avistan, the other parts of the Inner Sea. Uh, but they were probably the most influential. They had big armies, they had a lot of technology, had a lot of access to magic, were developing a lot of new stuff. Pretty cool. Uh, where it is, though, they weren't doing that on their own. Supposedly... Uh, all of that was because they had some help in the form of the Avalis, the Algolthu, the ancient, gross, tentacled monsters from deep beneath the ocean who were maybe manipulating things from behind the scenes and hoping to maybe shape Aslant and, and maybe humanity as a whole into something that could serve as their, uh, I don't know, their, their servants or something else. Who knows? But wouldn't you know it, humans are stubborn, right? And they decided to, to do things their own way and, and start spinning off into their own things and ignoring these requests from the Avalith. And soon enough, the Avalith got tired of things and decided, these humans aren't worth it, let's just blow them up. <laughs> and, and they called forth an amazingly large, powerful thing from deep beyond space uh, uh, of the solar system and, and essentially an enormous giant meteor that was, uh, yeah, we'll use this to destroy humans that are up on the surface, but they messed up and it was maybe a bit too big and a bit too powerful and a bit too destructive. And it destroyed Aslan, but also wrenched um, an entire landmass away, creating the inner sea and messed things up. It was the, the giant meteor that caused Earthfall and threw humanity into an age of darkness for thousands of years. Uh, pretty messed up. And, you know, humans have survived since then and spun off and, and become their, their own groups and cultures on their own. Uh, there's, there's too much to talk about with humanity, I think, setting-wise. But the, the only other one big thing I want to mention is there was one Aslanti that survived. The last Aslanti, a, a guy by the name of Aridin, pretty notable guy, ends up uh, becoming a, a very powerful spellcaster. I think he was a wizard in his uh, human days, uh, ends up raising that meteor from up out of the, the ocean. It contains the star stone and as a result reaches divinity and becomes the god of all humans for a long time until he died about a hundred years ago in the setting. So a lot of big stuff going on with humans, at least within the last couple millennia. Now, one there's so much more lore in Galarian for humans but mm -hmm. we just 
can't talk about it in this episode. Yeah. Because each human nation, and there's like, I don't know, like a ton of them, right? Each one of those could be its own episode to adequately cover that lore. So if you guys are interested in us doing some episodes covering some of the different nations from Galarian, uh, let us know, and that's definitely something we could look into. Mm-hmm. So normally on these Ancestry episodes, we like to do some build concepts, give you some ideas of names, and maybe do a bad accent. Since I don't, we don't know that that's necessarily fitting for fantasy humans, since they're so close to home. They're just a little bit too versatile in that, like, any class or any build uh, would really fit a human really well. They, they just map too well. So, and you know, honestly, that's kind of the point of humans, that they do excel in any field. Um, and on top of that, for any given class that you can think of, any play style for any class that you can think of, there's already, like, dozens, if not hundreds of examples from works of fiction so we kind of just have to pass the buck on this one. Just say, you know, if you want some examples of some archetypical fantasy humans, uh, go watch some TV. Go read a book. Watch a movie. Read a book. Yeah, uh, there's just guess, too many. I guess if you always wanted to, you could ask specifically, like, oh, who are some cool rogues, human rogues, or cool human wizards, or whatever, right? And that I think we can start giving you examples. But uh, beyond that, like, yeah humans are all over the place you'll find a class that maps to uh some human somewhere sometimes a, a given character will represent three or four different classes so you, you have plenty of options to choose from i think that my favorite fantasy specific human uh mm -hmm. wasn't even from pathfinder it's a bit of a cheat it was artemis intrare from uh, from the from forgotten realms mm -hmm. i just love that character he's so he's so plucky I don't know a ton about the like Galarian-specific heroes, but I do kind of like Arasni, even yeah. though I don't know if she still counts. Yeah, I mean, she was a human back in her day. I like Old Mage Tatembe. Baba Yaga's a human, technically. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of interesting humans you can pick from, even just within Pathfinder. Yeah. So let's get to some questions from some of our listeners. Uh, our first one is from patron Severin Lorat. Why half? Why are half elk, <laughs> half elk? Why are half elf and half orc, uh, instead of just half human that you can apply in anything? Uh, the briefest answer I think we can say is I don't think versatile heritages existed when the core rulebook was being written. But I think we can dive into this more when we have our half elf and half orc episode, because um, you know I think that's a valid question, uh, and maybe we'll bring that up. We'll we'll. we'll We'll copy and paste this question over to that episode, and, and we'll answer it then, I think. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I think in that episode we can talk about some of the history in the tabletop role-playing game, like, culture of mm -hmm. half-elf and half-work. Yeah. Uh, our next question is from our listener, Brian Lane. What makes Galarian humans different than Earth humans? And if Galarian and Earth both coexist, how do they both have humans? Um, I think I'll answer the second one first. If you look at the real world, right? Like how did we get different types of snakes on completely different continents, right? It just kind of happened to work out that way. I'm sure if you looked at a million different planets in the Galarian galaxies, not all of them would have humans. So some of them might just end up working out. They, Hey, humans ended up happening here too. Uh, okay. Just by so chance. we have different kinds of snakes in different kinds of places because mm -hmm. of migration and dispersal. Sure, but there there are some cases where like things evolve independently and it just works out that way. Oh, I see. Oh, shoot. What do they call that? I haven't thought about that. Convergent evolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so sometimes it just happens, right? With, with the infinite possibilities of, of uh, an infinite universe in which magic and stuff exists, I'm sure humans just kind of work out like that. Every once in a while, uh, I'm more like I'm more like the migration and dispersal answer. Like, um, sure. um, like one of the ways animals migrate sometimes is not even on purpose. Like when a rat like hitches a ride on a ship, you know, mm -hmm. it gets brought you know somewhere that it wasn't intending to go. Yeah, and like there's yeah. all kinds of things in the lore, in the world of Pathfinder, 
that could have easily picked up some humans and moved them to Galarian. Since yeah, we don't no. have, like, a record of humans evolving like we do here on Earth, mm-hmm. maybe they were brought here. Maybe, yeah. I was also going to suggest maybe there's a chance that a god made them that way, particularly, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. Or, uh, following your migration possibilities, you have things like planar gates, right? Teleportation that could accidentally drop a human off somewhere completely different uh, by no fault of their own, and then it just works out that, well, I guess the human survives because they're stubborn enough to keep themselves alive. A little spoiler about the Baba Yaga, since she was human. Uh, so cover your ears for like, I don't know, 20 seconds or something. Baba Yaga comes from Earth. She's not from Galarian, you know? Mm-hmm. And if the Baba Yaga can do that, who else can do that? Who else can, can go to Earth and maybe bring humans to Galarian? Yeah. What if but the Adelus did that? Could be. But that also uh, ties back to the answer to my first question, which is what makes Galarian humans different than Earth humans? I think magic does right uh if you read information in the the reign of winter ap very mild spoilers for that they mention real world earth and how earth used to have magic but not anymore or at least not in the same way that humans can access it in in galarian right whether or not you have the capability to cast spells as a human in galarian that's different but like you have access to magic you have exposure to all these different things that people on earth don't right even just growing up in a world where, uh, I don't know, a, a basilisk exists, but nothing else happens. Sometimes people get turned to stone and weird stuff happens, and that will probably change completely the dynamic of how humans grow to be as a species, right? So just, they have a lot going on, but I think the biggest thing that's influencing them is magic, the capacity to be influenced by magic, to cast magic themselves, and change the world around them with magic. Magic also gets in their bloodlines and you know mm-hmm. messes stuff up too. Like, it's something that, you know, humans just have to, they just have to cope with. Mm-hmm. Got a question here from our patron, Relkin, who asks, uh, since humans clearly are able to have offspring with different ancestries, does that mean most ancestries are part of a single species since they can all breed and have viable offspring? Does the science line up with that? So, what's in, so, let me, hmm. One definition of the speech, species concept is that two organisms are of the same species if they can breed in a viable offspring. But the deeper you get into exploring the species problem, as we call it in biology, the more you see that the whole idea of species as a label kind of breaks down and doesn't fit every situation or every organism, every population that we have on the planet. One example that is actually pretty common here in North America that violates the the traditional species definition is the koi wolf, which are becoming a huge problem in in the north, where where these coyotes and these wolves, which are two different species, will interbreed, have viable offspring, and then those viable offspring outcompete the coyotes and the wolves. So just because two different species can have viable offspring doesn't always mean that they're the same species. And I would suspect that that's kind of what's going on with, say, the difference between a halfling and an orc. Those clearly aren't the same species, even if they can both breed with humans. And I suspect a halfling can breed with humans. We don't have a half halfling. We don't have a quarterling well, ancestry yet, but like, I, 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 I suspect that, we could. I guess elf and orc would be the better example. Yeah, an elf and an orc, yeah. yeah. That's clearly not the same species. Or at the very least, what they could do, and this is how it works for the koi wolf, is that they are both the same genus, you know? So it's possible that all of these humanoid ancestries that can interbreed on Galarian might be part of the same family or genus. But I definitely wouldn't call them the same species. Mm-hmm. Are, are horses and donkeys in the same genus? Do we know? Um, we I could look I... real quick. Probably. Horses, family, equidae, and genus E. ferris. Um, oh, wait, equus. Equidae and equus. Equus for donkeys as well. So, yeah, that's yeah. how you get mules. So. That's how you yeah, get there, mules. Yeah, there might be some weird common ancestor that then spun out to halflings and elves and orcs and <laughs> dwarfs yep. and everything else. And the other common example, uh, 
Now, the mule it, uh, can't produce viable off or mm -hmm. can't produce reproduce on its own. So yeah. that's why it's typically used as an example that these are two different species. Another one that fits that profile is the liger, uh, where you have the lion and the tiger panther or cross the lion and the tiger cross, and they're both they're both genus Panthera. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting question, but I also propose. Um, magic exists so yeah who knows <laughs> there is always that <laughs> magic and gods exist well can never count those out listeners i need you to bring me as many biology questions for pathfinder as you can because it's my absolute favorite <laughs> oh man i would have loved to hear your biology take on how halflings got their feet <laughs> uh i i definitely could could come up with some ideas our next question is from one of our patrons, Dom. Humans get a lot of generic feats like natural ambition, but would it weaken humans too much to give other ancestries access to these options? I think mechanically, no, right? Obviously, the humans would still have that option and that wouldn't change anything. But thematically, absolutely, I think it would water down the, the human uh, concept in, in Pathfinder and stuff humans don't have any other kind of ancestry wide gimmick or theme going on with them beyond the versatility that we've talked about so opening up those feats that are the broad versatile feats would definitely water that down i think i think if you find a particular concept that humans latch onto and give them a, an alternative gimmick or theme or something like that you can do that safely and then you know they'd obviously have other stuff that only they can do um so the thing that comes to mind is uh, the Dragon Prince uh, show on Netflix, uh, which has fantasy magic and, and stuff like that. But there's a, a specific type of like dark magic that only humans know how to use. Doing something like that makes humans distinct enough that if you took their feats and brought them uh, or uh, generalized them so any ancestry could take natural ambition or whatever, you could keep that theme of like oh they have weird magic or, or some other stuff going on um you know divine blood or whatever uh theme that you come up with and keep that uh as their strong uh flavor core it almost sounds like a, a food thing the flavor <laughs> core um without uh, watering it down but as they are now yeah it would definitely i think uh take away from the humans in in, in a big way I agree completely. They they would lose kind of the thing that makes them human in Pathfinder. And one of the other suggestions that I would have for kind of fixing that would be to use the regions that the humans are from as inspiration. You know, mm -hmm. you could kind of, like, for example, the, the winter-touched Irizim. Like, what if you had a feat that gives them access to Snowball <laughs> as a spell, you know? Like, that that would make... Maybe they're not uniquely human anymore, but like, you know, uniquely irism. I think yeah. that'd be a good way you can go about it. Mm -hmm. Our next question is from listener Amaya Polaris. And Amaya Polaris, I loved your question, but it was too big. So what I've done is I have summarized it here. This listener noticed that when a monster assumes like some kind of non-threatening or deceptive form, that form is always almost human. So why do you think it is that always humans rather than some other ancestry? Uh, I mean, the, the first obvious thing is uh, I think a lot of these are creatures drawn from real worldness. So, of course, they m mimic humans, which is what we are in the real world. They're not mimicking doors because there are no doors in the real world and so on and so forth. And as a result, that also kind of maps to settings in a lot of cases where there are a lot of humans. Humans are the dominant or at least a highly populous species uh, among the other fantasy ancestries and as a result hey it's easier for uh, these creatures to trick the the higher percentage ancestry right um, and I think that that that's it right like that's ultimately the answer is we draw from the real world in the real world that's how they worked but um, I think uh, Amaya Polaris slash Polaris uh, asked also in their original quest, you know, is there a chance that there was some ancestor, common ancestor or some species or something that existed when these creatures were coming about where they were evolving or being made or whatever that maybe looked human and they still are looking like this 
older <laughs> uh, ancestry or, or common ancestry or whatever that just happens to look human, but nowadays that thing doesn't, that those people don't exist. That's an interesting theory, and I think that's an amazing, amazing story hook, right? Like some kind of progenitor species that happen to look human, and maybe they're the reason why elves and orcs and, and humans are, are having uh, their half orc and half elf uh, babies because they all have that common ancestor that was this weird thing that looked human and everything wanted to mimic that. Uh, With magic, anything is possible. It's magic, anything is possible. I think ultimately um, what should be happening is um, you take monsters like the Holdra, I think that's the first one that comes to mind, that, that looks like a person but is actually something else going on. It's a fae. Um, and you can give them a little sidebar or, or a little blurb in their their flavor that says hey in regions where other ancestries are more common maybe they do look like dwarves maybe they look like humans maybe they look or halflings maybe they look like elves um and just suggest the possibility that they can look differently maybe they don't necessarily have the the capacity to change themselves on the fly to always look like oh now i look like a human now i look like a dwarf but maybe some of them grew up looking like humans some of them grew up looking like dwarves some of them look like elves and they, they live in, in regions where, where that makes the most sense. I would kind of approach this more from, well, obviously I would, more from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm -hmm. When you look at animals in the real world who are deceptive with their appearance, who either try to look like something they're not, it's always for one of two purposes. And that's, and that's it. It's predation or avoiding predation. <laughs> So mm -hmm. they can kill, so that they can eat other creatures or avoid getting eaten by other creatures. And when they do these, when, they, when these displays develop over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, they develop for the things that are most commonly around that organism. So stick insects evolve to look like the sticks that are in their region. And when you look at stick insects from different regions, they look like different sticks, right? Same with like leaf insects. Uh, one thing that you don't see is them looking like some other regions, something or something that isn't exactly common in that area. And the way I think that this relates to this question is that if a monster was going to evolve to have a deceptive form or some type of camouflage like that, I think it would make sense that it would have evolved to have a form that most matches the most populous ancestry. Yeah, which well, it makes it easiest of, to succeed. Yeah, which in almost all of Galarian is human, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. a few places where humans aren't the most common, but they're vastly outnumbered by others. There, there's a good chance that there are these creatures, if they exist underground, that are similar, that you know they imitate other things, that none of them look human, right? They look like drow, they look like dwarves, they look like orcs. Yeah. And you won't see any of them that are human. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's how I would approach this. That's kind of what I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the it's, last... Oh, I was say, it's a very interesting question, I think. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say before we conclude the topic about humans is that I really hope that maybe this conversation, maybe this episode, has helped you to think more about the fantasy human than just the vanilla or just like the mm -hmm. default choice, the choice that doesn't have flavor. Or maybe even think more about our own species. Like with, nat like with history and with current events, we tend to look at humans and say, man, we're the worst. I hate people. But there is a good side to humanity. There is a good mm -hmm. side to, to humans. And, you know, I think when we can, we should recognize and celebrate that. And I don't Absolutely. know. I kind of hope that I kind of hope that we help some of you do that. Yeah, I, I I honestly think this is probably some of the most interesting conversations we've had on the show so far. Uh, just and it, it came from humans, right? The the most obvious thing. It's like, oh wait, actually, there's a lot to these guys. <laughs> yeah. Humans I say that I, I feel like I'm I'm expressing that in a way that makes me sound like I'm an alien who's like, oh, I'm learning about humans, and it turns out they're more interesting than I thought. <laughs> humans are definitely my favorite uh, fantasy choice in Pathfinder mm -hmm. and, and in video games and everywhere. I've always just loved the human spirit, and yeah, I think that's going to continue. 
That's all we have for you today. Make sure to check out the rest of our content on the No Direction Network. If you like this show or any of our other blogs or shows, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash no direction because it's the support of our patrons that make this all possible. Until next time, I'm Luis. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening to Legend Lore. And as always, it's been legendary. Legendary.